as the world is writing a new story of global kinship, Postmodern Missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Reverend Katie Meek as she explores life and faith in Sierra Leone. Hi, friends, and welcome to another Postmodern Missionary podcast. Um, today, I have the first part of a two-part interview with the Reverend Dr. Professor George K. Rue. He's a very impressive human being, and I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Now, he is a philosopher by trade, and so you're going to have to get your philosophy thinking caps on for this one. Um, we get into... Uh, like some like just legit philosophy, postmodern philosophy, liberal philosophy, all kinds of things. So um, just be ready for that. The other thing I noticed as I was editing this one is that I don't, I don't know, we must have been close to a cell phone or something because we get um, pretty consistent cell phone experience, experience, cell phone interference throughout this interview. So I apologize for some of the sound quality issues. Um, but I hope you can overlook that because this is a great conversation. So enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Postmodern Missionary. I am here with the Reverend Dr. Professor George K. Rue, um, who is the Vice Chancellor of the University, and you will find also that he has lived many, many lives. Um, and uh, I've had the privilege of um, sitting in his office and hearing something about his history and his life and all of those things. And so I wanted to let you hear that. He's also a philosopher, um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about postmodernism as well. So, Professor, I told you this just a minute ago, however, <laughs> you are a very, very smart man. Oftentimes, even when I, I'm a learned person, but ever, sometimes when even when I'm um, around you, I think, boy, he's too smart for me. So <laughs> um, we're going to ask you to, to, as we talk, especially on the philosoph philosophical side, kind of, oh, there's a rooster outside. I don't know if you heard that, but um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. well, um, we're going to ask you to kind of dumb it down for, for the rest of us mortals, yeah? Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> but, uh, yes, okay, well. Just read. Well read, that's all, really. Well, well read and very intelligent as well. <laughs> yeah. It comes together that way. Mm. Okay, so um, you, why don't you introduce yourself to us um, just the way that you'd like to? Well, um, my name is George Kiru. Mm -hmm. I'm from Sierra Leone. I'm the first of six children of a late Reverend B.A. Keru, Benjamin Keru. I had my primary and, and uh, high school education here in Sierra Leone. At high school at, at Al the Albert Academy, at right? At the Albert Academy, Which is a very yeah. prestigious and important school. Yes. You can talk about that later. But. I would, yes, yes, yes. And then, then I was fortunate to pursue my higher education in the United States where I got both my first, second, and, and uh, my PhD in philosophy, uh, specializing in analytical philosophy mm. at the University of Connecticut. And I taught, my first teaching job was at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where I taught for three years before coming to uh, Frobe College, University of Sierra Leone, which is the oldest 
college in Africa, mm-hmm. south of Sahara. Just down the street from my house. Yes. It started actually in 1827. Mm. And uh, interestingly enough, the first president of a college was from South Carolina. <laughs> wow. Yeah, okay. so we've had a very long and rich history and connection with both the United States and with Britain. Yeah, uh, that's wonderful. Yes. And I taught at the university uh, for 11 years and rose to be both the head of Department of Philosophy and Classics. And later on, I was appointed uh, Deputy High Commissioner to London, mm. the Court of St. James, where I was um, a diplomat for two years as ambassador, and I was then transferred to Washington, D.C., the United States, where I was accredited as ambassador with multiple accreditations to Canada, mm. Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil. Wow. Yeah. And later on, I came back to Freetown at the end of my diplomatic career and I was Minister of Agriculture <laughs> <laughs> for a year. And at the end of my diplomatic as well as my political career, I returned to academia. I went back to the United States as a visiting professor at the University of Connecticut for a year. And then I was also visiting professor at the University of Iowa. I taught again for one year. Midwest? And then, yeah, Midwest, yes. Midwest. Iowa City. Iowa, yes. And later on, I actually went to Spelman College where I taught for uh, another six years. And then I decided at the age of 60 to enter uh, the ministry as a missionary. Mm -hmm. Then was posted to Nigeria for the first three years. And then later on, as an academic, I was sent to Liberia uh, to help develop the newly established United Methodist University. And I served in that capacity as Vice President for Academic Affairs for nine years. And I retired at that point. I came back to Sierra Leone and I was asked to help them because they were starting their own university, United Methodist University, and that's where I am. Uh, at the present moment. Right, so you have had many lifetimes. I think people are starting <laughs> to understand what I mean by that. <laughs> yeah, we have several different caps. Yeah. Uh, reincarnations, I mean, yes. Yes, wonderful. That's mm. wonderful. So, okay, while I'm thinking about it, this is a little off uh, the scheduled process, but so Howard University, that's a historically black, black university, that's right? right? That's so right. it's like a very prestigious historically black university. Yeah. What was it like being an African? at a historically African-American black university. Did you feel, uh, yeah, we'll just leave that question there. What was it like? Well, I I did love interaction mm-hmm. because for the very first time, really, I was in the midst of people who looked like myself, mm-hmm. uh, even though we had different experiences. Uh, but it gave me a rather very balanced picture Mm. of the United States since much of my education had been in a, you know, let me put it this way, uh, in uh, non-black institutions. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, what they call down there the uh, traditional black, you know, right. institutions. So, right. Uh, I had, so by the time I came back to Australia, I actually had a uh, the kind of education one would have expected, not only the academic, mm-hmm. but I also had the exposure. Like kind of a of cultural education. Cultural education, yes. Yeah. I've been exposed to 
the different aspects of the culture in the United States. Huh. So Wait. I thought that was a very good preparation for what I needed to do and had to do for the future yeah. because we were part of a larger picture in terms of a global scene. Yeah. I'm going to have to have you come back and we talk about race relations. In the I States. would, yes. Because uh, we don't have time for all that right now, but I'm really curious. I'm, I'm tempted just to go in that direction. <laughs> okay, so you're the vice chancellor of our uh, n the new United Methodist University of Sierra Leone, where, wherein I lecture. I come as a lecturer. In fact, I met you, I think, on our, my first Sunday yeah. here. You happened to be um, at present at Charles Davies United Methodist Church, and you said, we need someone to teach English. Yes, and indeed. I said, I'm not an English teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and here I am teaching English. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so tell us what it means to be the vice chancellor. Like, what is that role? Um, and, and then in the process, can you tell us also about the vision of the school of the United Methodist University here? Well, the role of a vice chancellor on, uh, well, let me say, an Anglo system, English-based educational system, is more of an administrative role. You have established colleges, and you normally carry out the day-to-day -day administration of the university to ensure that uh, uh, the university is properly run and stuff, and that uh, people adhere to the rules. The students are properly catered for, mm -hmm. and your lecturers do what they are supposed to do, and you support academic excellence, etc., uh, etc. Et so it is largely administrative. Uh, the role of an American president is, is has to do more with ensuring that the university has adequate finances. It's endowed, okay. stuff like that. So, so on the fundraising I, side, on the fundraising side, yes. Okay. So that's a really very big difference. Mm -hmm. So I come here with. Precisely that kind of a background where I don't quite see myself simply as an administrator right. or only as an administrator, but more importantly, as someone who needs to look around and to uh, explore all avenues to provide adequate funds for, right. for the progress of the university and to ensure that the university's vision, you know, theory will be ultimately realized. Yes. And, and I work at the Bishop Wiener School of Theology. It's the only school that we have open right now, mm -hmm. but eventually we'll have many different schools. And you're the VC over the entire university. University system, yes. Okay. So it's a developmental approach, and, and it's a process mm -hmm. uh, which we in the expect. I mean, we expect in the next five years to have actually uh, have full complements of uh, of colleges or faculties mm -hmm. uh, uh, to make up the University of Australia. It was a similar approach that we adopted. At, uh, uh, in Liberia, where the United Methodist University over a decade was able to have a full complement of about nine faculties. Mm -hmm. Yes, and with a stu uh, faculty, uh, the student population now of 7,000 students mm -hmm. before I left there, yes. And so we're hoping to duplicate uh, wow. yeah, <laughs> that exercise here. Absolutely. Yeah. So, wh what's the reasoning behind um, specifically United Methodist University? like? Um, one of the questions I know the bishop was asked was, why why do we need another university in Sierra Leone? We have these universities. So, um, you know, what is the vision in terms of the need that the United Methodist University is fulfilling? Well, the United Methodist is a leading uh, faith-based institution mm -hmm. in the country. We have, over the last 150 years, uh, provided quality education uh, for 
our people all over the country. And when we had independence, if we didn't have the Albert Academy, which was inaugurated somewhere around 1906, mm -hmm. it would have been impossible for us to even have an educated uh, president from the predominantly provinces. Mm -hmm. So here we were at the first inauguration of uh, our cabinet after independence. Uh, we had virtually over 70% of the staff actually being people who had graduated from the, the yeah, so mission faith-based institution. And that's the United Methodist School. And the United Methodist School, yeah, yes. Yeah. And the United Methodist School. So, in pursuit of, you know, of taking it maybe to its logical conclusion, we believe in faith-based institutions as the one that provides not only uh, character formation, right. but also attends uh, seriously to the spiritual development mm -hmm. of the people, which is part of our mission mm -hmm. uh, here. Because we really believe that our schools and colleagues and our students have had the evangelistical wing of a church. So we pursue this goal tenaciously in hope that at the end of the day, that the people we produce will not simply only have skills, mm -hmm. but also have integrity and yeah. character, and we'd also have a fear of God. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that character formation is, is incredibly important. And the more I talk with even expats, both Sierra Leoneans and expats doing work here, it seems to me like you can, you can try and try and try to alleviate poverty. But until the leaders consistently act out of integrity and character, it's a lot of times those efforts are going to be undermined. Well, indeed. I mean, that's where we are, where we are now, uh, with problems regarding corruption. Uh, because when you have government-based institutions where the focus is largely on skills acquisition, mm -hmm. it is very difficult to emphasize that those who have skills uh, must also provide the necessary leadership that would be required to you know, for development to take place. Right. If you have not ensured that those guys who acquired skills also had integrity and character. Right. And so that's where we come in. Right. Uh, all government institutions do not emphasize the, the acquisition or the need to acquire character and maybe to develop spirituality. Mm -hmm. So the only thing they emphasize is uh, uh, as what we normally refer to as a secular institution. Right. The only thing they require is for you to have a training and the skills, and then that, that's it. But we are beginning to see that there was something really absent. Right. We had edited out the need and relevance of character building, yeah, and that, along with skills, could definitely have provided the much-needed leadership uh, that is now lacking. Yeah. And yes. I, I think some t sometimes even like the, <laughs> the fear of God, um, which is not language that I would have ever used probably um, a, even a year ago. But, you know, I was talking even t to my cook about, you know, the work that she does and that sort of thing. And, and one of the things that she said is, look, I, I know that I, I, I know that there are things that I could get into and do, like steal from you, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but in the end... I know that God, I, I, I have to answer to a higher power. And there is, there is a, a power that's bigger than me um, that, uh, that I want to, um, I mean, in some ways, please. So, 
I'm still forming my ideas, my thoughts around that. However, I do think that there is something to the idea that um, there is a morality bigger than me and an authority bigger than me. So that when you come into authority, you have some humility. Um, so I think there's there's some of that as well in the process of teaching. Yes, obviously. I mean, that's where, as I said, the relevance of spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you develop spiritually, obviously, you are humbled mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, especially from the perspective of being a Christian. Right. Humility is one of the you know, virtues, if not probably the principal virtue of Christianity. You kind of recognize yes. your place in the well, world. Well, what we do, we do not do because of ourselves. We do this as a result of uh, the will of God right. or, or because of His grace. Right. So we can't take credit right. for our actions. So definitely our starting point is always from a humble standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the universities, the three main values are excellence, integrity, and and service. Precisely. Um, which I just I think those are the three perfect words. Yeah, I don't fact, think yes, you, you could come up with anything better in in terms of the needs of this country. Yes. Um, so it's pretty exciting to be a part of. Okay, we are. In, I'll I'll just tell the readers. This is kind of we're in we're in your living room. Or not the readers, the listeners. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're in your living room right now and drinking tea. So if you hear tea happening or you hear a rooster outside, that that's that's just going to be a part of the podcast. Um, it's a it's a conversational by nature, so that's a good thing. Okay, so here, so in the states, we call anybody professor is if you teach on the college level, but not here. And I don't know if that's an uh, uh, British thing or if it's an African yes, yes. thing. Yes, and the British thing. It's uh, in the um, British tradition, um, the doctor is an academic qualification. Right. Uh, a professor is a professional qualification, and that comes with your accomplishments in terms of not only teaching excellence, but also uh, publication. Right. Okay, so, so you have to have a PhD and you have to be published Precisely. and have a certain amount of time of teaching. Is it's that the way it is? about time, yeah. And be an established academic. Okay. Yeah, to deserve that title. Right. So I came, I came here a year ago and I'm like, oh, I'm a professor. I'm a professor. <laughs> I learned quickly that that's not really, actually. There's certain, there, you, you have, to, I am published, but I don't have a PhD. So, um, and I have not been teaching very long. So uh, we really only actually have two professors at the school, right? now um and that's you and dr moiba whom i'm i've interviewed for this podcast as well You told us a little bit already about your education. What is what? It, what? What did you call it? It's um, not just philosophy, but it is applied philosophy. No, no, no. My initial dream is an analytic philosophy. Analytic. What does that mean? Well, uh, it is in the different philosophical traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, analytic philosophy emphasizes the use of language and logic. Okay. And the analysis of statements and propositions and uh, what they mean. So it's really part of what we normally refer to as, a, you know, the ascendancy of positivism over a long period. And we have Wittgenstein and uh, Russell and all the others, uh -huh. Gilbert Ryle. And uh, it was within that British-American tradition of analytic philosophy that 
uh, in the eastern schools of uh, uh, United States, especially Connecticut, Yale, Harvard, and uh, they normally we are very big on analytic on philosophy. analytic yeah, philosophy. Yes, yes. My PhD dissertation though was in political philosophy. Okay. Yes. Uh, was that related to Sierra Leone? I know you've you've oh, no. written a book yes. um, about well, not specifically Sierra Leone, but African. Yes. Now post, you have a post-colonial uh, uh, post-colonial application uh, from uh, theory to practice. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm currently involved in. But initially, uh, uh, my prejudice dissertation on uh, John Stuart Mill that was his reconstruction of the principles of non-interference. Okay. That Can was the thing. Can you explain that to us as though we don't know anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how to put it, but I'll attempt to do this rather very simply. Okay. Yes. Uh, the principle of non-interference is very, very crucial to a liberal doctrine. Okay. Where individuals, if they are autonomous and free, that is uh, rational persons who have a right to make decisions on their own behalf and who have a right to pursue their interests without interference from no one. Okay. Not even the government. So that okay. The role of a government in terms of the private and public sector, uh-huh. the government ensures that the individual's rights are preserved and protected okay. in the private realm. Okay. So to that extent, you cannot interfere with the pursuit of a person's interest in the private realm unless there is a need to do so from a standpoint that what he probably had done had interfered with the interests of others for as long as okay. what he does does not harm the interest of others, no, nobody within that private realm. That way you provide the kind of culture within the private realm where anyone can do what they want to do, not even the government okay. can tell them what to do. The role of the government is that really of a policeman. It ensures, like the libertarian, if you really want to take it from that... From know, a political, right, yeah, like give it a political pray, party. Well, that is it, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and to a large extent, you already have that in the United States. The role of the government is to ensure that the freedom of, you know, autonomy of the individual, that the individual is sovereign in as far as what he wants and does in a private realm. And if the government's role is to protect the individual's right to exercise right. that freedom. Okay. You see. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. From a, from a cultural standpoint then, it's interesting to me because you are, you are Sierra Leonean. You grew up until you were probably, what, 20? You were, you were in Sierra Leone. And my learning about, um, uh, about African culture and r- a really kind of um, global South culture is that um, they are more, much more community-minded, communal in mindsets. So, so I'm, I'm wondering how that philosophical position where it talks about the right of the individual, um, how does that translate into a culture that is, is so community-focused uh, and relationship-based? Well, it's not so much. <clears throat> that was, in fact, the point of my analysis, uh, that uh, at the end of the day, to what extent can you really... Uh, push this to its logical conclusion mm-hmm. uh, when uh, within the African context right. uh, we do have groups especially diverse groups 
and communities within the society. They make up these different groups virtually uh, here. But we are, uh, what I'm now really talking about is the rights of the individual. Uh-huh. If not more so, I mean, the emphasis is not so much, in fact, on uh, the system of duties. It's more of a system of rights. What, okay. in fact, is the individual rights and uh, why he should be allowed to pursue this right. The, the idea of a group really is, uh, does not really exist as such, except, of course, a collection of individuals uh-huh. where you could reduce them. Uh-huh. The group itself is reduced to individuals. Right. Yes, so just a collection of group in the and they're reduced to, to individuals. But right. uh, groups are not what you call intrinsic entities. They don't exist per se in and of themselves that deserve uh, certain attributes or recognition. So, uh, coming back, of course, to Africa, there are individuals and there are markers there. Uh, because of diversity, there are identity issues uh-huh. uh, where, you know, people are in tribal groups. So, other aspects of, uh, and that's in fact where we've had problems when you, you want to translate this whole idea of uh, liberal individualism. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in a community-based so- society, right. society that is diverse and have different uh, identity question issues. It may well be ethnic, mm-hmm. well, which is the dominant issue here. It could be, uh, Maka might be, uh, it could be religious sometimes, where the most important identity is your religious, yes. Yeah. And uh, what that leads us to is a situation whereby, you know, we begin to see how uh, there could be incompatible with the idea of uh, uh, being, uh, nationality, mm. you know, mm. yeah, that uh, if you prioritize your religion, then maybe is that incompatible with being, you know, uh, a Soral Union? Right. Is that compatible with your, you know, with the whole idea of nationality? So the question of citizenship okay. becomes a crucial. Huh. A, yeah. And... Uh, Eventually, uh, it's as a result of this that I, I moved on to uh, continental phenomenology okay. and then in the postmodern thinking, which allowed me to provide me with the resources yes. to address you some, know, of this, uh, some of the, what we would call uh, inadequacies yeah. of uh, uh, liberal uh, philosophy. Okay, so you, so, okay, it seems like what I hear you saying is you have a critique of r- liberal philosophy, um, but at the same time, African cultures and Sierra Leonean cultures might, m- culture, might benefit from a little more um, emphasis on the individual. Am I right on that? Well, I'm, no, no, what I'm actually saying, there is a sense in which the rights of individuals ought to be emphasized. Yes. Uh, because the rather very opposite of this would be a situation of a communitarian in mm-hmm. which the individual really is less important and the group is that more. That more important. And, 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 and I want to stay away from such a communitarian interpretation. Right. 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 Uh, uh, to move in. That the individual, even though may be part of a group and derives his identity or uh, rights or interactions and benefits from that group uh, does not, as a result of this, lose his individuality. Because as an individual, 
he may have a distinct interest. Mm-hmm. It's not only defined in terms of one interest. Mm-hmm. It's a one who participates in multiple situations and therefore multiple identities. Right. And so in that regard, we would say in as much as he has his identity, is also an independent rational person who sees that in order for him to realize his potential as that person, he may have to interact with other people in that political and social environment in which he lives. Right. And a political and social environment that has multiple uh, social groups, mm. multiple diverse groups, with diverse interests. But there may be interests that crisscross amongst members, even within the group. Some will be men with females, some will be males, and they are professionals as teachers, mm-hmm. and they may have other interests with people from different groups who happen to be uh, sharing similar, you know. So, okay, so, yeah. I think, so okay. It's, that, it's in that regard right. that in as much as we view individualism as an important uh, consideration here, I do not want to see it outside of a context right. of a, you know. And that's where postmodernism comes in. That's where postmodernism comes in. Aha. But we'll get there. We're not there yet. We'll get there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So that's, yeah, I I appreciate that because essentially what you're saying, I think what I hear you saying is the individual is important and in some ways Sierra Leone uh, would benefit from, from emphasizing individual rights and individual voice, which is something that I do in the classroom. My, my guiding value is the world needs your voice, not somebody else's yours, um, because you have something to offer. So I, I, th- I agree with you that um, one of the challenges here is that people stay quiet or small um, because the because of the kind of community expectations um, around authority and around earning your way and around time and age and that sort of thing. So and those could be constraining as well. Yes. Know? So you can have it both ways. There is a need to be part of a community, but there is also a need for you to be an individual if you are going to be able to realize your potential as that person you do. And I would say that the United States is too far on the individual side. In fact, I've written a blog about this. And I think yeah. Sierra Leone is too far on the community side. And there are problems that come with both. So in the end, moving toward the center, because you, I agree with you, I think that the community doesn't exist except that, um, except by what we make it and what we call it and what we create, the meaning that we create around it and identity and all of that. But it does exist because here you are you and I are sitting together. We are community here together right now. And and if if I were alone all the time, then maybe there'd be no community. But I have to come and, and out into the world and see other people. So anyway, all that to say... It, what I meant to say, uh-huh. and probably I was putting it in much more academic terms, yeah. is from an ontological standpoint. Mm-hmm. Where... Ontol- ontological means uh, reality, the state, the nature of uh, reality. Nature of re- reality. Yeah, where the individual who stands outside of society mm-hmm. with very certain abstract rights. Yes. You know, and to the extent that you're, you're, that is your starting point, the aggregate of this, the sum of these individuals, you know, can be reduced to the can in the course well, the total sum of it can be reduced to individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of a group 
then in this kind of an analysis, uh, you know, in terms of group differences, mm-hmm. different groups uh, do not exist. Right. Because we take these aggregates as simply a sum of individuals, uh-huh. which are reducible. Down. So if you if you if you move it to its core, yes, it it's, is it's individual. It's individual. And so it's really simply a collection of individuals. Uh-huh. And there are no rather uh, important attributes or let me put it interesting qualities to tie them up to a group such that the group is bigger than the individual. That is why you can reduce them to only individuals. I mean, I don't know whether that is saying putting it as simply as possible. No, I, I understand yeah, what yes. you mean. I don't yeah, know if yeah. I agree, but I understand what you well, mean. Well, I, I, I mean, that's where you, one would take issue with uh, liberalism. Right. That is its, uh, you know, its flaw. And when you try to articulate a good amount of issues, especially in this dealing with diverse societies, it's been unable to really address this question because it is hostile to difference. Mm-hmm. Differences mm-hmm. do not exist. Right. Things are homogeneous and unified right. in liberalism. So it cannot address differences. It's hostile to differences. Ah, okay. You so see. that's where postmodern critique comes in. And that's where postmodern in. critique comes in, yes. Okay, so, and by liberalism, you're not talking about, like, American political liberalism. No, no, you're no, talking no, about philosophical, philosophical which, yes. which came around, what, mm. the late 1800s, early that 1900s? beginning with Locke and Locke, Hobbes, and, of course, contemporary, you know, people like uh, uh, Rawls, mm-hmm. John Rawls, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And, and from, from philosophical liberalism came uh, a theological liberalism as well. Yes. Um, and in some ways, some of those ideas permeate the political conversation do, but in many way but in many ways um, they they are apples and oranges yes uh, uh, you uh, know just fundamentally different this is it and that is why for instance a good example of this by in the United States and away from a sociological standpoint they reject your group identity mm-hmm. and they preach assimilation yeah they say they say when we talk in terms of the melting pot thesis right you come into the United States and you lose your group identity and also because you become what you know assimilated right. to American culture and values and in that re- in that sense you become American mm-hmm. and for a long time that was the melting pot faces was a in fact the uh, uh, predominant and if not the most influential you know uh, view of uh, political and social integration mm-hmm. in the United States is right. now being challenged. Right. I've heard, where, I've heard people say it's more like a salad bowl than it is a melting pot, well, where you have all of these distinct things that come together and make it flavorful. And Well, beautiful. the whole question of a salad bowl is, uh, is really contesting the view uh-huh. of a melting pot. Thesis, right, right, exactly. That you can still become American where you accommodate these diversities and respect individual identities. Right. That being different, being, you know, uh, uh, speaking a different language and, and cultural value is not a threat, it's not a threat mm-hmm. to your national identity. Right. We shouldn't be afraid but of... They are compatible in, in, in yeah. a sense. You yeah. See? Whereas the whole idea about assimilation is that you must leave behind your differences. Mm-hmm. 
if possible, you should privatize your defenses. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> the subject, Rev, yes. Right, take it out of the public, public spe- sector. Yes, yeah. take it away from the public and yeah. the private. But now people say, no, 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 you have to project your differences even at the private level. And, right. that's, and the United States, even right now, that's why you're having the reactions we're having. Right. It is now faced with this challenge of multiculturalism. Because there's a certain fear that yes. if we give away that power, then who are we? Well, because largely the, the whole idea of some kind of neutral universal standard mm-hmm. was itself not true. Right. It's simply a dominant culture whose right. values we are being represented right. at the uh, uh, public level yeah. as the universal standard. Yeah. So those individuals who were then, whose values had been, feel now threatened yeah. that if you were to have other values projected at public land, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there will be a contestation right. of <laughs> the right for those values yeah. to be predominant, you see. I remember about mm-hmm. 10 years ago, somebody said to me, um, a really, really nice lady who was very American, um, said, you know, I just, I always wished that I had a culture. And I was just, I've just always been sad that I don't have a culture. And, and um, you know, I, I'm sorry I didn't challenge that at the time because what uh, essentially she was implying was our way of doing things is the gold standard. It's the right way. Mm-hmm. And everybody else who does something different deviates from that. That's it. When in fact, ours is one culture among many cultures. Indeed. And there are certain ways um, that we do things that might be better than others, but, other, you know, we might deem better than others. Mm-hmm. But then other cultures might have something to teach us as well. And, and so there is no gold standard. There is just culture. Yeah, I mean, um, being what we'll refer to as the struggle for recognition uh-huh. is largely uh, uh, an identity issue. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, individual identities that have to be submerged or rejected so that some kind of dominant identity will prevail. Uh, it's been rather kind of harmful mm-hmm. and uh, probably adverse, adverse effects on, you know, how it could contribute to the richness in terms of the diversity of values that it brings to bear on the public. Uh, it would contribute towards, uh, you know, uh, the richness of the what is it, overall cultural setting right. the public, because you could draw upon so many mm-hmm. differences and values, you know, in order to address, you know, your problems. That right. would allow for growth. But then more importantly, you that it would allow for how do you intersubjective existence, how you relate to each other in the public level. Because one of the things about uh, having that kind of universal standard is that it privileges a particular cultural group and values and then treats all the others who are not quite, who are different as the other. Right. And this is where the danger lies, you see, because, you know, there's an attempt to sometimes denigrate mm-hmm. other values uh, because the standard value they don't quite measure up right. to what you can understand. That standard value is the representative of a dominant group's value. Right, right. You say. Right, so here's the gold standard, and if you don't, if you're not you in the gold standard, then yeah. you are automatically underneath. Yeah, yeah. You, you are not considered. Uh, so it's just like in some places in the United States, I mean, in the Spanish language, mm. uh, people frown on whether you wanted to study Spanish. Right. Or to be with the whole idea 
of as it is now, uh, with uh, the threat of having United States emphasizing a dual language, yeah, of Spanish and people say no. I mean, if they want to come and be integrated into our culture and society, then, then they, they should learn to. English. Right. We shouldn't have to be forced to learn the language. Right. So that's all part of a struggle that is currently going on. And with this I whole just, business of uh, recognition. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I just think that there, that, that um, is short-sighted thinking because, I mean, academically speaking, in fact, we were just talking about this in class yesterday, the other day, learning a second language actually makes you smarter and improves your, I, it, it improves your intelligence and improves mm-hmm. your mind, but I think it also improves your quality of living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so the idea to say, well, it would be, we would be losing something to gain another language, I, I, I just think fundamentally misses the point. And, and then another piece of that is... Uh, but not only in the sense that individuals tend to benefit from uh, broadening their horizon and education, mm-hmm. but there is an important dimension that's often ignored, as I just mentioned. It's the whole area of uh, this self-respect and the self-esteem of others. Yes. When you tend to denigrate other values you devalue the the identities and the cultural values of other groups. And the worth, the self-worth. And, and, and that affects their self-worth. Yeah. It affects their self-esteem, and it also affects their self And you couldn't have citizens in that context where certain class and groups of people would consider themselves first-class citizens and the others really, by implication, are actually second-class citizens. Mm. And if they really want to operate or want to be recognized, they need to assimilate into that first level where, by definition, they cannot even succeed Mm. because they are already marked as the other. Right. You see? So it is this whole idea of social justice Mm -hmm. that is being raised in that context, Mm -hmm. the idea of social justice, because what this portends is that we would not have our equal rights and equal opportunities to self-realize ourselves. There are some people who are more privileged than others, so we need to have a playing field which liberal philosophy only pays lip service to. Mm -hmm. It gives all these views of abstract rights but these are, in essence, rights that are, uh, that are uh, ascribed to uh, abstract individuals. Mm-hmm. What we refer to in philosophy as disembodied mm-hmm. egos. They are not people, uh, they are okay. disembodied. Yeah. It does not relate to realities of a ground. That's interesting. You see? Yeah. But, you know, right, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of assembly, freedom of work. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yet, in the real sense of a world, there are people who cannot really even utilize these freedoms because they are handicapped mm-hmm. by these so-called structures mm-hmm. that have been imposed upon them in the society. Social structures, uh, cultural structures, uh, which are impediments right. to individual movements. And, and so if we were to look at it from an institutional and social structural standpoint, we get a different picture of the social injustice here. And so you really cannot, you can't start off by saying, I'm talking about freedom, when in essence, 
it is really a disguised form an obscure sense of freedom, right. which is in fact only allows a certain group of people who are already privileged within that society mm-hmm. to exercise that freedom where others are also excluded right. from that society. Right. And this is where, as I said again, postmodernism comes into play uh-huh. to allow individuals, to allow us now to address social justice in that broader context. Right. Well, and and talking about, um, I I mean, I think I have an example, a lived example in Sierra Leone of being someone who who came in from the outside. I am not the norm. I stick out as not the norm here. Um, And my experience, uh, and I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but my my experience, for example, going into town and needing to buy something is, like the bishop, the first meeting I had, he said, if you want to buy something and they tell you it's $10, you offer $3 because that's probably what it actually costs. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they see your face and they assume things about you, um, they treat you differently. Fundamentally differently. Oh, so, yes, yes. so in that way, I mean, my experience is that the systems are set in place here are set up to treat outsiders differently than insiders. And that's not necessarily. Uh, that I don't have a value judgment to say about that, but I but I will but, say that my experience of it is well. It feels a little unfair. Well, it takes <laughs> and frustrating. Uh, well, it, it is not a disparaging sort of value judgment. Right. It's merely taking advantage of someone whom you believe has more money than right. the average right. person, mm-hmm. and equally taking advantage of uh, his lack of knowledge of uh, the bargaining process. Right. That it comes to here yeah, because you don't normally go to a store in the U.S. and start asking mm-hmm. that the prices be used right. on <laughs> your account. Yeah, yeah. Will go to an old day. Navy yeah. and say, this You'll is $30, I will pay 20 attached to it and then you start saying that it's just what I have. No, right. you don't do this, <laughs> you see. But around here, the, the whole process... It's a process. Right. So but it's you, a yeah, system. It is. It's, it's a is. system yeah. of doing things, a system yes. of being. So, and so I'm on the outside of that. You have to go through the process of bargaining. Right. For the, you know, and if you can arrive at, uh, you said, you, you see, sta- she said surprise, and you state your vision. Mm-hmm. And, and you come to what we normally refer as an agreeable point. So right. there are different prices for different people. Right. Even amongst our us, Ooh. based on their ability and their shrewdness to bargain. Right. And also, I think, accent and whether or not that person thinks that you have money. All of that comes into it. Because right. I, if I go to the store, I may just be as, as much a victim as you. Right. Because I would probably want to have, even have the patience of wanting to bargain. I wouldn't probably right. not. It takes it. a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> Some other person will probably have both the time and the patience and as well the knowledge. Right. See, because the average person who is familiar with that kind of a setup does not buy until he or she had gone to three or four mm-hmm. in the bargain. Right. And then at the end of the day, we'd find out which one offers the uh, best. The best. <laughs> you see. And I don't well, have time for that. That is it. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. So, uh, <laughs> you know, ladies who go to the mine who do that rather uh, or who do right. their shopping, I tell you, uh, they're very familiar with the program. They even enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yes. Because it's very communal. Well, it right? Communal, you, yes. you, you're making friends with people as mm-hmm. you go. That's it. And that's something that I'm learning as well because, I mean, I come from a very uh, task-oriented culture, so I need to get the job done and then move on. Mm-hmm. This is a very relationship-oriented cult- yeah, culture. So, so in some ways, even purchasing things is set up to form relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I'm learning that I'm trying to... Um, 
give a little bit more grace to it because for the most part, it's frustrating to me. I want to go somewhere, buy something and leave. <laughs> I don't want to spend all this time. But they want to get to know you. And that's part of, I mean, the whole system is set up for that kind of relationship. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay, so um, we'll take a break from philosophy and come back to it. <laughs> you were ambassador to the United States. Ta will you tell us about that um, experience? What, what did you do as an ambassador? Well, of course, the role of an ambassador is to represent, uh, you know, his or her uh, country of origin. Mm -hmm. And as an ambassador uh, from Sierra Leone to the United States, uh, my role there was to, I was the official mm -hmm. representative of the government of Sierra Leone mm -hmm. to the United States government. And I had to submit my credentials, official credentials accrediting me as ambassador to, in my case then, it was Ronald Reagan. Oh, really? Yes. During the Reagan years? During the Reagan years. So you've uh, met Ronald Reagan? Oh, I did. Ah. <laughs> I went to the White Oval House. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, yes, and I... You were uh, in the Oval Office? Oval Office, yes. <laughs> Took pictures there with him, you know. Wow. I had a photo up with Reagan. I had a photo up with George Bush. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, senior. Uh-huh. Yes, and the White House after Reagan left office. And uh, if, with regards to our bilateral relationships, mm -hmm. I would, you know, often be uh, related to the United States State Department. Right. But that's really was my, right. uh, you know, we had a desk officer uh -huh. to whom I, on a regular basis, related. Right. Yes. Uh, that makes sense. The, the State uh, Department is the international arm of the, the United States of, yes, government. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was a channel through which we would normally communicate already. And if they needed to uh, investigate or wanted me to transmit something of importance, or mm -hmm. they would call me or they had official complaints or they, they would yeah but apart from these diplomatic niceties mm -hmm. yeah you, you much of your work then also will have to do with your nationals right and then of course you travel around the united states uh you know speaking engagements to uh, give uh, uh, the american audiences wherever you might be invited especially in my case I had, was invited to a lot of universities right. where I, I gave uh, talks mm -hmm. um, largely about Sierra Leone and investment possibilities. Okay. So your job is not just simply, uh, it's not administrative at all. You have an administrative staff. Right. You, you know, headed by uh, no less a person than uh, what they may refer to as a council or minister. Mm -hmm. You see, and uh, their job is to take care of all of the day-to-day -day activities and to relate to Sierra Leone. As I said, your job is just a political representation. Right. Your job so is relational. You're the figurehead in many ways. Yes. Right. To your, uh, you know, wherever country you've been accredited to. Mm -hmm. And if you have, um, have multiple accreditations, since we're a small country, we cannot afford to uh, assign ambassador to every country like the United States now oh, okay. uh, has the capacity financially and otherwise uh, to provide uh, your consular as well as uh, 
<laughs> and that's if I see just I don't know the world. Right. So you we have, have a really one. big embassy. I mean, I, every time I go there, I'm like, that's huge. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, you know, well, that's it, and that's the case everywhere. Right. The American embassy, wherever you go, is the biggest. Yeah, <laughs> it's imposing. Is. It's imposing. It is imposing. <laughs> if you go to uh, the sub region, Liberia, Ghana, mm-hmm. that's there's Nigeria. one in every country. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, but uh, these smaller countries uh, have to be, uh, you definitely have to have a presence in, uh, you know, the first world countries like, uh, especially uh, superpower like the United States. Right. I mean, just about every nation in the world. Has, has an embassy, embassy in the states embassy, yeah mm-hmm. and it gives you also an opportunity to interact mm-hmm. with people from different i mean ambassadors from you know because you are constantly uh, you know attending receptions mm-hmm. <laughs> from different embassy occasions and and stuff like that. And it gives you an opportunity to meet people right. change views you know to explore trade i bet that was a very rich oh, it was, yes. experience like oh, time yes. in your life yeah it was a very rich experience uh, the time in my life. Then I was also a very young man. Mm. And at that point, I mean, I think I was like 40 or so. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, it corrupted me in a sense because I spent most of my time attending functions and, right. and sipping champagne. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so. know what I was. That was the best thing for me to do because yet after when I got home, the only thing I could think of is to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think also sometimes I I go to those sorts of things, conferences and and things, and I have to remind myself, this is not real life. You're going to go home and have a regular life where you have to clean toilets I was happy to come back to academia (laughs) at the end of it, you know, where it took me a while to get myself into into the framework of... You know, having to sit down five hours and prepare class notes and, right. <laughs> and ready for the next, uh, you know, lecture, so on and so forth. Right. A lot. Yeah. I mean, jobs that are relational sometimes feel they're more fun. I think, in in a lot of ways, depending upon your personality. Um, but and then and then when you get used to that, going and sitting down and having to write papers and prepare things and Indeed, yeah, yeah, hit the hit the pavement and all of that's more difficult. Okay, friends. So next week, you'll get the second part. Um, We get into more specifics around the Sierra Leonean experience next week. Also, um, his perspective on missionaries, um, as well as some politics. So um, these are just interesting conversations, and I hope that you enjoyed them. Have a great day. We'll see you next week. God bless you.